Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Terry Grossman to the show today. He is the co-author of two blockbuster books, Transcend, the new one, Nine Steps to Living Well Forever, by him and Ray Kurzweil, and also Fantastic Voyage. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you all know if you've been listening to the show how committed I am to anti-aging and living well. We've done so many different shows, but you really need to listen today to Dr. Terry Grossman. This book really talks about the nine steps to living well forever. We're going to talk about those nine steps, but you're going to hear some breakthrough scientific discoveries. We're going to talk about the three bridges to prevention and early detection of disease, three bridges to radical life extension. We're going to talk about inflammation, how we create our own brains, and completely new knowledge about how heart attacks really happen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome our guest, Dr. Terry Grossman, to the show today. Good morning. Morning. You are the director of the Grossman Wellness Center in Denver and internationally sought-out expert and practitioner in longevity medicine. And in reading this book, Transcend, these bridges to radical life extension are really not part of what people know around the world. People know to take supplements. People know to eat better, to exercise. But this book seems to put it all together. How long did it take you to write this? Well, uh, I've written uh, three books on anti-aging and life extension. And this is the third in the series. And this one uh, took about a year to write. And I wrote it with uh, my co-author, Ray Kurzweil, who is a well-known futurist and uh, entrepreneur and scientist. Indeed. In fact, I would like to start, if that's okay with you, by contextualizing this dialogue we're going to have today, which is that Ray calls the law of accelerating returns a doubling of capability each year, which means the ability to understand, model, simulate, and reprogram the information processes underlying disease and aging. Processes will be a thousand times more powerful in one decade, and a million times more powerful in two decades. And according to his models, he says we're shrinking technology at an exponential pace by about a hundredfold per decade, and these technologies will be 10,000 times smaller just 20 years from now. Isn't this what Transcend begins with? Yes, the idea is uh, behind uh, Transcend. It's uh, nine steps to living well forever. That we have technologies today that can help us to live longer than people who came before us. In fact, uh, right now we're adding about five to six hours to our estimated life expectancy every day that we're alive. And if that increases to 24 hours per day, that means that the, the end point of our lives, our projected lifespan, the horizon will be constantly moving. And it is uh, certainly a possibility that many people now alive will live to, to experience that radical increase in human longevity. The thing I loved about your book is that it bridged totally new knowledge for detection and preventing diseases and catching them early and made it real and available to us and also highlighted heart attacks and cancer is totally preventable. Can you talk about how heart attacks are preventable in this new knowledge we have to detect them early? Uh, absolutely. Uh, with heart disease, the, which is heart attack right now, the, the leading cause of death uh, in the United States and many parts of the developed world. And if you take heart attacks and cancer together, uh, they constitute more than 50% of all deaths. With, with heart disease, people discover they have heart disease in one of three ways. <clears throat> they have a uh, uh, they develop chest pain. They get symptoms. Uh, they're carrying something heavy up the stairs. They get some uh, chest discomfort. Uh, they're able to go to a physician and be diagnosed uh, and treated before any serious heart damage in the form of a heart attack occurs. Unfortunately, that's the minority of patients. Only one out of three people is lucky enough to have that type of, of presentation, that manifestation disease. The other two out of three people discover they have heart disease by suffering a sudden heart attack. And of those two-thirds, 
that have uh, discovered they have heart disease by having a heart attack, half of them die that just immediately. So essentially, heart disease manifests in one of three ways. One-third of people develop symptoms, chest pain, they can be treated. One-third of people have a heart attack that they survive, and one-third of people have a heart attack that proves fatal. So uh, if we were able to discover that we have buildup of the cholesterol plaque within our heart arteries, which is uh, the cause that leads to heart attacks, if we can discover that we have this buildup early, then we can take preventive action to reverse that plaque, to stabilize that plaque so that we don't go on to have a heart attack. And we can do that with the use of two tests that I talk about in Transcend. One of these tests is called the coronary artery calcium score. And it's done with a CAT scan machine. It's a very simple test. It takes less than five minutes. In many areas of the country, it costs between $150 and $200. Uh, So it's inexpensive, fast, safe, painless. And people will discover if they have any buildup of this uh, plaque within their coronary arteries. And if they do, they can then take aggressive action to stabilize it so that they don't go on and become one of these statistics. The second test that I recommend is what's called advanced lipid testing. Most patients, most people have, have had health care screening and screening through their conventional uh, physicians where they measure things like cholesterol and HDL, which is the good cholesterol, LDL is the bad cholesterol, etc. But we now have the ability to, to dig a lot deeper and to look and see, is it uh, the good type of HDL or is it the indifferent type of HDL? Is it the bad type of LDL? LDL is the cholesterol that typically deposits in the arteries. Do we have the type that, that tends to build up? And there's also a type of LDL that's not so, not so dangerous. So by digging deeper, by looking at other, other markers like homocysteine and C-reactive protein, which is a measure of inflammation, we can determine if people are at risk and what steps they can take. So with these two tests, which both can be done for in the neighborhood of $300 or so, uh, people can find out what their risk is of developing uh, heart disease, and that's the number one cause of death. So that would have a tremendous impact uh, on our potential longevity. Dr. Grossman, do you feel that most doctors will order these tests or who have kept up enough to order these type of tests for people at certain ages or at certain times? Are these tests well known to them? They're becoming better known. Uh, When I began doing this type of longevity and anti-aging medicine uh, in the late 1990s, both of these tests were available. So we've been uh, utilizing uh, certainly the ultra-fast CAT scans and these advanced lipid testing. The ultra-fast CAT scans, the coronary artery tests, have been available for over 15 years. Um, But conventional doctors are only now beginning to use them. And more and more cardiologists and other physicians are, are adding these to their, to their diagnostic testing. With the advanced lipid testing that they're able to do, uh, these have been available for about 10 years. Uh, cardiologists seem to be ordering these uh, more widely, uh, so I'm beginning to see these more. The coronary artery calcium test is still, when I give a, a lecture, I'll often ask the, uh, the audience to raise their hands if they had this test done because I think it's important that people have a test done that's uh, inexpensive and can diagnose a heart disease early, uh, yet very rare is more than one hand in 10 go up in the audience when I ask it. So it's still not common knowledge, unfortunately. How often do you recommend that people get the test? Well, for most people um, who don't have a strong family history of heart disease, I feel that, that men can get their initial screening at age 45 and women at 50. If uh, people do have heart attacks in their family, uh, particularly at young ages, uh, I like to push that up uh, by five years so that men could start the screening at 40 and women at 45. Then depending on what the test shows, uh, we can determine should the test be done in two years or should the test be repeated in five years. I don't like to do these tests that often. Uh, I like to do it as an initial screening uh, just to see where we're at to get an idea of how aggressively to manage patients. But it is a CAT scan. It does use radiation. It's equal to about 10 chest X-rays. So we don't want to do it uh, every six months or every year. 
so it, it really depends on if people have a high score or a low score, how often we'll do it after that. But it does provide critical information when it's done as an initial screening. I was very excited to see that there is new knowledge in the area of what's really causing the heart attacks. And I know you and Ray talked about vulnerable plaque is the real villain in the story. Can you share a little bit with us about it? Yeah, plaque is the buildup of cholesterol inside of the arteries. And up until recently, most uh, cardiologists regarded the hard plaque, the plaque that's coated with cholesterol. Uh, It's like plaster, uh, and it obstructs arteries to a greater degree than the second kind of plaque known as vulnerable plaque. Vulnerable plaque is soft, it's small, it's hard to see. And in fact, when we do the ultra-fast CAT scan, we're actually looking at the hard plaque, which is not the cause of heart disease. However, there is a correlation between hard plaque and soft plaque. If people have no hard plaque, it's unlikely that they have any of the soft or vulnerable plaque, so we don't need to worry. And if they have a lot of hard plaque, then they undoubtedly have a lot of this vulnerable plaque as well. So uh, the steps we can take. The vulnerable plaque is vulnerable to uh, what's called oxidation. Uh, Oxidation is a, a chemical process where this cholesterol can be released from the wall of the artery. It creates an enormous amount of inflammation. This can lead to the formation of a blood clot. And a blood clot, which can obstruct an artery, Uh, cuts off the blood flow to the heart, and is what we refer to as a heart attack. So we have a combination of this buildup of the soft plaque within the heart arteries and the presence of inflammation, which is a a silent process that goes on within the body that we're also able to detect uh, by this blood test known as the C-reactive protein to determine if people are at risk of developing a heart disease. I noticed that you wrote a lot, too, about inflammation being one of the causal agents in disease. Do you see nanobots as one of the basic ways that we'll be getting rid of inflammation, or do you see free radical scavengers as being the way to get rid of inflammation, or both? Well, both. Uh, And when Ray Kurzweil and I have uh, written our books, both uh, Fantastic Voyage in 2004 and uh, Transcend in 2009, we talk about the three bridges of uh, anti-aging, of longevity. And bridge one is the, the technologies that we have available today. And within that uh, bridge one technologies of today, if we were looking at inflammation, we would look at things like uh, reducing weight because we know that, that fat, the excess fat that we carry around our midsections, is actually one of the most potent generators of inflammation within the body. We used to think that fat was just a storage vehicle. It was unsightly. Uh, It increased our risk of diabetes and arthritis and back pain and things like that. But we now realize that fat actually is an organ, uh, an an endocrine organ. In other words, it secretes hormones. Uh, There are hormones like adiponectin and several other hormones that are secreted by fat And the more fat that we carry, the more inflammation we have in our body. And inflammation is a chemical process that increases our risk of virtually every major uh, disease. Inflammation is at the root of heart disease. Inflammation is intimately linked with the most common types of cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer. Uh, Inflammation is linked to Alzheimer's disease and arthritis and diabetes. So to the degree that we're able to reduce inflammation in our bodies, uh, number one, by reducing our excess fat, and then there are other ways that we have inflammation in our body. Uh, Probably the second most common source is the inflammation we have in our mouths. Almost everybody has some degree of gum infection, gingivitis. Uh, Not enough people uh, use their dental floss regularly, and they develop this uh, silent inflammation of the gums. Well, that inflammation that's in our mouth, the gingivitis, it has an echo effect throughout our bloodstreams and throughout our bodies. And having not flossing regularly is actually a risk factor for cancer and heart disease because it creates inflammation elsewhere in the body. So there are simple steps that we can do like that uh, to reduce the inflammation that we have within our bodies and to reduce our risk of these major killers. You are very much promoted in the book, the stool analysis, the CTS, hair mineral analysis, ultra-fast CT scans. 
I'd like you to talk about the stool analysis and the hair mineral analysis, even though there's so many things that you recommend in the book, because I think that a lot of people assume that the hair analysis is not going to show anything and nobody wants to do a stool analysis. And I really think they should be highlighted by you. Yeah, we try to look at uh, almost everything that comes out of the body. We do blood tests. We do saliva tests, and with the saliva tests, we're looking at uh, levels of cortisol, for instance. We do urine tests. Uh, we do hair tests. Uh, and as you mentioned, we do the, the stool test. Uh, the stool tests we do to determine how well our, our digestive tract is digesting food. So by doing it, no, no one enjoys collecting a stool analysis, and honestly, the people in the lab don't enjoy uh, performing the, the tests that we need to work on. But... Nonetheless, we can get some very critical information from a stool analysis. Uh, for instance, if we find the presence of lots of fat uh, in the stool, this tells us that our, our digestive process is not very good at breaking down fat. In other words, we may need to improve our digestion. Uh, we may need to, if we find meat fibers or vegetable fibers in the food, uh, we're not breaking down food in the stomach with stomach acid. We're not chewing properly. Uh, we can look at the bacterial uh, content of the stool. Uh, it appears that the most common cell type in the human body, and this is something that actually the majority of physicians in practice don't know, but the most common cell type in the body is not our muscle cells, it's not our bone cells, it's not our fat cells. It's actually the bacterial cells living in our colon, which are then shed in the stool. So by doing a stool analysis, we can see what type of bacteria are growing. Do we have overgrowth of abnormal bacteria, which almost everybody does? And the reason we get this overgrowth of abnormal bacteria is because uh, typically the, the, much of the food we eat, uh, most of the conventionally uh, grown meat products, beef and chicken, uh, eggs, dairy, uh, they, give, uh, they keep the animals in enclosed areas. Uh, which are not healthful, and as a result, they need to give these animals large quantities of antibiotics to keep them from getting sick from these enclosed conditions. The, antibody, the antibiotics uh, end up in the meat and the chicken and the eggs and the milk, uh, and those travel into our digestive tracts when we eat these type of foods, and those antibiotics will kill the bacteria, the, the normal healthy bacteria that's typically found within the, the colon, and then we get overgrowth of yeast and some other types of abnormal bacteria. So we can find a wealth of information with a stool analysis. Uh, as far as hair goes, uh, hair can tell us what's circulating in the bloodstream because over a long period of time. So, for instance, if we find uh, the presence of large amounts of calcium, magnesium, and strontium in the hair, those are the three biggest bone minerals. And very commonly in uh, postmenopausal women, we will do a hair analysis and we'll find a large amounts of these three minerals uh, in the hair, in which case we know that this woman is turning over her, her bone and we need to be more aggressive uh, with uh, uh, preventing osteopenia and osteoporosis in this woman. Uh, we can also notice the presence of toxins in the hair, particularly heavy metals like arsenic and mercury and lead and aluminum. So by doing a hair analysis, uh, we have a simple, inexpensive, and non-invasive way of uh, getting a snapshot of many different uh, factors inside the body. You went pretty thoroughly into your perspectives on hormone and hormone replacement, which was pretty much up to speed with what I've understood about the anti-aging perspective, which is balancing the hormones, testing the hormones, not just winging it. How long do you think it will take for doctors to catch up to where you are? in terms of the way they look at it. I know that anti-aging research and the A4M has been around for over 10 years and a lot more doctors are coming up to speed. But given Ray's analogy of the exponential rate at which things are going to change and maybe knowledge will be known, what's your take on it before some of this becomes common knowledge? Well, just as we discussed with the use of the, the coronary artery calcium score for heart disease, it's been available for 15 years, and only now are a, a relatively small number of cardiologists beginning to recommend it, but it's becoming more and more widespread. The same thing's going on with uh, hormone therapy. Until about, uh, say, 
uh, it was about 2004, uh, the Women's Health Initiative study came out and showed that the conventional hormone therapy, the use of uh, the, the drug hormones, Premarin and Provera, that physicians were commonly using, uh, actually had some health risks. Prior to 2004, OBGYNs and family doctors were commonly prescribing hormone therapies for women. And in, in 2004, a Premarin, the, the drug uh, estrogen that physicians were prescribing, was actually the number one prescribed drug in the United States. Well, when that Women's Health Initiative came out and showed that these drugs had some health risks, increase of breast cancer, blood clots, and some other problems, uh, physicians uh, essentially refused to use them. Uh, only use them in uh, very, very rare cases. Uh, but anti-aging physicians and nutritional physicians have continued to use a different type of hormone because we didn't use Premarin and Provera even then. For a long time, we've been using what are called bioidentical hormones. Bioidentical hormones are hormones that essentially are identical to what is naturally found in our bodies. And we have bioidentical testosterone for use in men, bioidentical estrogen, and progesterone for use in women, smaller amounts of bioidentical testosterone for women. And the studies have shown that the use of the bioidentical hormones is not associated with the type of risk that the drugs were. So uh, the anti-aging physicians have been using this continuously. But fortunately, even the conventional OBGYNs are now coming around and realizing that these bioidentical hormones are safe, and they are beginning to prescribe them once again as well. And we need to look at women in particular. Uh, women are now living uh, well into their late 70s and 80s. Average life expectancy for women is about 79 years in the United States. And in some places like Japan, it's, it's closer to 90 years. Yet the average age of menopause is 50. And it really is unfair for women to be expected to live for 30 or 40 years without the benefit of hormones uh, because Hormones are really what rejuvenate us, what keep us youthful. And when our hormones are taken away, we lose our bone strength, we lose our muscle strength, we lose our hearing, uh, we lose our eyesight, and we even lose our, our, our mental acuity, our energy, and our focus. And the hormones can help us to restore that. So if we have the ability to use these bioidentical hormones that are safe and effective, uh, I think that we should look at this option. The same thing applies to men. Uh, we used to think that uh, high testosterone levels were associated with an increased risk of prostate cancer. So um, most doctors were very reluctant to prescribe testosterone uh, for men as they got older uh, because of fear of prostate cancer. But what we have found out is exactly the opposite. It's actually men who have low testosterone levels who are at increased risk of uh, prostate cancer. Also men who have high estrogen levels are at increased risk of prostate cancer. So while conventional doctors have not got around to checking estrogen levels in men, uh, nutritional physicians and anti-aging physicians will typically not just measure testosterone, but they also look at estrogen levels in men and do what's necessary to optimize testosterone, lower estrogen, uh, so that we can uh, keep men vigorous uh, and healthy uh, throughout their, their later years as well. You and Ray had talked about how in the early days it was thought that 80% of our health is related to genetics and that 20% is based on lifestyle and that it's now flipped. Can you talk a little bit about that, the recent findings? Yeah, that's exactly true. Uh, this rule of 80-20 applies in so many aspects of life. Uh, 80% of the assets of the world are owned by 20% of the population. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually true. That's the yes. rule of 80-20, which was uh, invented by, uh, discovered by uh, uh, an economist in Italy named Pareto back about 100 years ago. Uh, business meetings, we typically take care of, uh, use 80% of the time to do 20% of the agenda. Uh, and it also applies in genetics. Uh, but we were 100% we wrong about this. We thought that our our genes determined 80% of what was going to happen to us and our lifestyle choices, which are affecting the, the expression of these genes, was actually the other 20%. What we've discovered is the genes are just the blueprints, but our lifestyle choices determine whether or not those genes we have are going to be expressed. So most genes just represent tendencies. 
So you might have a tendency to heart disease. You might have a tendency to be overweight. You might have a tendency to develop macular degeneration, uh, the most leading cause of blindness. Uh, but your lifestyle choices can offset those genetic tendencies to a, to a much greater degree than your genes can uh, because your lifestyle choices can determine whether or not genes are not open. They're not, they're not wide open. The genes that are in your body, most of the genes are covered uh, with proteins. They have like uh, insulation over them, and they can't be read. Uh, it's only when they're uncovered. But the lifestyle choices you make can, can either keep good genes uncovered and bad genes covered so that you don't need to worry about them. So it's really what we talk about is the expression of genes, and our lifestyle choices control our gene expression. Isn't that great news? It really is because it means that we are in charge of our destiny to a far greater extent than we ever thought before. Just because our parents suffered certain diseases does not mean that we are predestined to develop those same uh, diseases as well. Uh, we, can, we can control that. We know that we have tendencies. We know we have to be more serious. We have to be more careful uh, depending. And that's why I think it is useful to consider doing some genomics testing to find out what diseases we are predisposed to. Don't you find that some people get really scared doing genomics testing because they think if something has a tendency that they're going to get whatever it is? Uh, as long as they, they get this information and they realize that they're empowered and they can be empowered, uh, we've done genomics testing on hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of patients over the years. And I don't think anybody has, has life has been, has not been happy that they did this testing. They were all glad to find out, even if they find they had some uh, the bad genes, because they know that there's things that they can do about it. You had a lot of genomics testing done, didn't you? Yeah, I did genomics testing on myself. I did it through multiple com companies uh, to test the various gene tests that were available. And, you know, I found out I had some, some bad uh, genes, and I've taken some steps in order to reduce the expression of them to reduce my risk. So it's been very meaningful uh, for me. And I mean, it's, it's no fun to find out that you have genes that are bad, but you know, we have 25,000 genes. You're not going to have 25,000 good genes. Some of them are going to be, uh, are going to be undesirable, but even undesirable genes have uh, beneficial effects. So for instance, uh, one of the genes that increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease known as APOE4, reduces the risk of macular degeneration, this uh, leading cause of blindness. So most genes, even if they're bad, they have a silver lining to them as well. I like that you talked about RNA interference to try to turn off the fat insulin receptor gene in the fat cells. Can you talk about this? Because this seems like this is something most people want who are dealing with weight issues. Well, uh, what we're doing with the uh, what's called RNA interference, if you remember back to biology, our genes are DNA, and the DNA is located in the nucleus. The DNA is double-stranded, and it creates uh, RNA, which then goes out into the cell, and it serves to create the proteins that do the job and do the work of what needs to be done. It, it's very difficult to, to actually go inside of the nucleus and turn off a gene directly with a medication. Uh, we mentioned that the genes are covered by these uh, histone proteins, and technically, it's a very difficult place to work. So what's happened instead is rather than trying to directly turn off the gene, researchers are looking to turn off the RNA that the gene makes. And that's what's referred to as RNAi or RNA interference. So the scientists are creating molecules that will bind to the RNA and essentially shut it down so that it, it can't make these proteins that are bad. So if we have this, what's called FERCO gene, the fat insulin receptor, uh, the fat insulin receptor, the FIR gene, uh, this gene increases risk of becoming obese. And there are certain Indian tribes, for instance, that possess this gene. And as a result, historically, it helped them to uh, use calories very effectively so that they were able to survive famines. But nowadays, when they are not subjected to regular famines, this has resulted in an extremely high incidence of obesity in these populations. So we would like to be able to turn off that gene, in effect. So uh, they have developed uh, some mice strains, and they're working on some RNA interference molecules 
And hopefully we will soon have medications that people will take that will knock out these, these genes so that they're not expressed. And in effect, people will be able to eat whatever they want and still not uh, gain weight. So that would be very, very nice. I know that you had said in the book there's a thousand drugs in the pipeline already for RNA interference methods. I noticed and I felt in reading Transcend, you didn't have much reluctance or concern about the drugs. I know in a little part of it, you talked about, yes, there are some bad drugs that are out there. But do you have confidence in the pharmaceutical industry with respect to coming up with drugs that don't have terrible side effects? Well, that's the problem with with drugs is most drugs do have side effects. So my personal bias is to use drugs as little as possible. So for instance, uh, one of the most commonly prescribed drugs today uh, are the uh, statin drugs, which are used to lower cholesterol. And if people need to lower their cholesterol, what we do in our clinic is we suggest that they make appropriate dietary changes and also look at some nutrients things like red yeast rice and niacin and plant sterols. And through the use of those, uh, the majority of patients can lower even extremely high cholesterol levels to more desirable levels and avoid the use of these drugs. And the reason I would prefer to avoid these drugs is many of these, many people that take these drugs develop muscle pains, uh, liver function abnormalities, it, it reduces the production of coenzyme Q10, which is a critical nutrient in the body that helps prevent cancer and high blood pressure. So even though there are occasional patients that need to take uh, powerful statin drugs, the majority actually don't need to. Uh, there are, on the other hand, a few prescription drugs that I think are very beneficial. One of them is uh, an, an FDA-approved drug for diabetes known as metformin. And metformin works to help blood sugar move, move help sugar move from the blood to inside of the cells. And we, we know now that the only proven method of increasing the life expectancy of laboratory animals is caloric restriction, uh, cutting their calories by as much as a third. Very few people want to do that. Most people don't want to cut their calories by a third Doing so, uh, you're, you're hungry much of the time. You have a very gaunt appearance. So what we'd like to do is we would like to be able to experience the benefits of caloric restriction without restricting our calories. And it appears that metformin is a medication that mimics the effects of caloric restriction in our bodies. So even for non-diabetics, uh, it, is, it, it is safe for the majority of people to consider taking uh, Metformin. So we will use uh, some of these medications in an off-label use for life extension purposes. Um, so uh, I'm not totally opposed to the use of medications, but we want to do so uh, in a safe fashion. I also found you're making the distinction between the glycemic load versus the glycemic index. And I really felt that that was cutting to the chase when it comes to evaluating our food. Could you explain that? Yeah, when, when we eat uh, uh, carbohydrates in particular, we, we, dif- we differentiate between what are referred to as high glycemic index carbohydrates and low glycemic index. And glycemic index refers to the rate at which that food breaks down into simple sugar. So if we have a, a food such as popcorn, or uh, white bread, or white potatoes. These are foods that have a relatively high glycemic index because they break down into sugar very quickly. If we have a food such as brown rice, or sweet potatoes, or beans, or lentils, these are examples of carbohydrate foods that have very low glycemic index. So if we were just going to compare glycemic index to glycemic index, high versus low, we would prefer the, the low glycemic index foods because they release their sugar more slowly, which means that the body can burn it. When we eat high glycemic index foods, the the bloodstream gets a sudden surge of sugar. We can't burn it quick enough, so it gets turned into fat, stored as fat. Uh, But that's not the whole answer. If we just look at glycemic index, we we would compare carrots or peas. Carrots and peas have very high glycemic index. However, they don't have a lot of carbohydrates in them, so... 
what we do is we actually measure the total grams of carbohydrates in a food times their glycemic index to get what's called the glycemic load, and then the glycemic load will tell us what the effect of that food is on our body. It's a much more sensitive indicator of whether or not to avoid that food. So things like carrots are actually safe to eat because they have a low glycemic load. But then on the other hand, if we have carrot juice, a glass of carrot juice actually has a lot of uh, grams of carbohydrates in it and therefore has a high glycemic load. So it, 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 it's another level of information for us. What has been your personal challenge that you've found in getting people up to speed with what frames of reference they really need to be paying attention to, to live long enough to have a chance at living forever? Well, I think that many of us don't, you know, believe in the possibilities. Uh, And therefore, since we don't believe in the possibilities, we're not willing to take the steps that are necessary to bring them to fruition. I think you have to have a vision that it is possible to live to be 120 years of age and to do so in optimal health. And I think with uh, present-day technologies, it's certainly possible to live to be 90 or 95 and stay in very good health. I have a number of patients in their 90s, and their brains are sharp, and they're physically active. Uh, And I think that with the technologies that are available and the new uh, diagnostic abilities we have, that we'll be able to extend this to 100 and then to 120 uh, within the next uh, couple decades. Uh, so you first have to have the belief that this is possible. Uh, then if you believe that it's possible, you have to be willing to take the steps uh, so that you can optimize your health to, to do the tests that are necessary to, 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 early, to detect disease as early as possible so it can be, can be treated before it goes on uh, to become difficult. We can use that same rule of 80-20 to apply to d- disease to detection as we did to uh, talking about genes and economics. Like with heart disease, we were talking about the fact that most people don't find out they have a, a heart disease until they have a heart attack. That's because the rule of 80-20 is, is, is at play there. We can be building up cholesterol within the walls of our arteries. We can occlude 50%, 60%, 70% of our arteries, and yet we don't develop any symptoms. It's when we get up around 80% and there's only 20% of the blood through that artery that's available uh, to the heart muscle that we then be- begin to develop these symptoms. Yet by then, it's already uh, too late. Um, patients need to look at surgical options. Patients are at high risk of heart attacks. The same thing applies with, uh, with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, uh, which affects almost 20 million Americans now. Uh, the people uh, become overweight. They eat the wrong high glycemic uh, foods. Uh, they, they overstress their pancreas. The cells in the pancreas that make the insulin, uh, the islet cells, uh, wear out. You lose 10%, 50%, 60%, 70% of those cells, and your blood sugar doesn't go up. When you lose 80% of your cells, at that point, your blood sugar starts to rise, and then you can be diagnosed with diabetes, but you've already knocked out 80% of your pancreas, and that can't be restored. So we would like to, to do a much better job of early detection, uh, which will help us as well. This is so manageable. That's one of the most exciting things about the book is that everything that was offered was very manageable, very practical, very much within reach. I do think you're right that a lot of people don't believe they can live long and live well. People can do them on their own. They're available on their, online. They're available through their conventional physicians. And some of the tests you know, need to be done in an anti-aging clinic like our clinic in Denver, uh, and they may want to do some through us and some through their family doctors. But these things are widely accessible. So I think people really do want to, to, take, to take their own health into their own hands. Uh, and when we talk about Transcend, the first step of Transcend, the T, the T stands for talk with your doctor. I mean, when you go in and talk to a lawyer, when you go in and talk to an accountant, if you go in with a plan for what you want to accomplish, uh, you, will, you will get more done in the course of that visit. And I think the same thing can happen when you go in and see a, a physician. If you go in with a plan, if you know what you want to accomplish, rather than having the doctor be in charge, you can get a lot more, more done in the course of your visits. I wanted to talk about how in the beginning of the book, I think it was Ray talked about how we create our brains. I thought that was fascinating about how our thoughts and how we feel impacts our brain and brain chemistry. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, Ray right now is is, is writing a book about the brain and how to re-engineer the brain. And uh, it's really fascinating that we've discovered that we we 
you actually control your thoughts to a far greater degree than we thought also. Um, there is a saying, nerve cells or neurons that uh, fire together, wire together. In other words, if you think a certain thought, you form those connections between the brain cells to emphasize that thought. So there's any number of ways of looking at what is going on outside of us. And, you know, the uh, what the bleep movies and things really showed that we create our own reality to a far greater extent than, than we thought in the past. And how you look at and how you emote about things really will affect not just your health, but the quality of your life to a, to a, a very large extent. I thought it was fascinating that he gives his consciousness, his mind problems to solve during sleep. Ray has a, a, a very fascinating form. <laughs> he, is, he has invented, uh, he's one of the foremost inventors. He invented the flatbed scanner. He invented uh, speech recognition for computers. He invented the reading machine for the blind. He invented the, the, the keyboard that plays all the different instruments. Uh, he's, he's been a very prolific inventor throughout his life. And he says what he'll typically do when he is faced uh, with a problem that he's having a hard time solving is right when he's getting ready to go to sleep, he will fix that in his mind. And then he finds that doing so, he will uh, oftentimes wake up in the morning with a solution to that problem. So he refers to that as lucid dreaming. And it's a fascinating technique that he discusses in our books. Very, very interesting. You're a huge proponent of omega-3, coenzyme Q10, grapeseed extract, ALA, acetyl L-carnitine, and acetyl glutathione, and others that you've mentioned. And the most interesting of all was the fact that so many of us take our multivitamin for granted. And you and Ray would not allow us to do that anymore in the book. And I wanted you to talk about the multivitamin, why it should be brought back as one of the things we absolutely do, aside from the fish oils, coenzyme Q10, and the other things you mentioned. Well, the three, the three supplements that I think everybody should take now, virtually everybody, is the combination of a good multiple vitamin and mineral formula. And uh, there's a biochemist, he's in his 80s now, uh, out in San Francisco, Bruce Ames. Uh, and he has worked on micronutrients. And Dr. Ames has showed how critical uh, many of the processes in the body are dependent on vitamins and minerals. And yet 90% of Americans, and we're, we have more nutrition and access to more good food than anywhere in the world, Yet, 90% of us are deficient in one or more critically important vitamins or minerals. So, uh, what's important is to take uh, a good multiple vitamin mineral formula to make sure that we don't have any deficiencies. So, all of our enzyme uh, systems work optimally. So, that we begin with a good multiple vitamin mineral. Then, secondly, we've mentioned that inflammation is at the root cause of all of the major killers, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, etc. Yet fish oil is highly protective and lowers inflammation. So I think that virtually everybody would do well to take a fish oil supplement as well. And then finally, even mainstream physicians are coming to the realization that almost everybody does not have enough vitamin D in their bodies. We used to think just five, ten years ago that vitamin D uh, was good for bone health, we don't get vitamin D in our diets. We get vitamin D from the sun, and we've been told by the dermatologists to stay out of the sun. Uh, it'll create a skin cancer and skin aging, so everybody puts their sunscreen on. We've reduced our, our vitamin D through the sun, and as a result, everybody's walking around with low vitamin D levels. Yet vitamin D is protective against heart disease, cancer, all these big killers as well. turns out vitamin D is critical to good health. So the, the vitamin D that's contained in multiple vitamins is typically 400 units or 800 units, yet most people need thousands of units. It's not uncommon for people to need 4,000 or 5,000 units a day or more for long periods of time in order to get optimal levels. And vitamin D is the one nutrient that we actually measure. Uh, we do a, a blood test for, for vitamin D, and we're looking for a level in our bloodstream between 50 and 80. It's very inexpensive to take that blood test. Oh, yeah, the blood test is expensive, and vitamin D is one of the least expensive nutrients there exactly. is. Exactly. Are you looking forward to the genome and telomerase test, and do you prescribe that? 
Yeah, there, there is a test now that you're referring to the telomeres, and telomeres are the little end caps on the end of our chromosomes. And as we, as we age, uh, those little end caps at the end of our chromosomes shorten. Um, and those end caps, they're like the little plastic caps on the end of shoelaces. They keep the shoelace from unraveling, and the telomeres keep the DNA, the double-stranded DNA, from unraveling. And when the telomeres get too short, the DNA unravels and the cell dies. And when our telomeres and all of our cells get too short, then we die. So it, it's critical that we maintain our telomere length. We know that certain lifestyle practices, for instance, stress reduction, um, aerobic exercise, drinking green tea, uh, improves telomere length. There are also uh, some uh, supplements, one based on astragalus, that improves uh, telomere length, makes the telomeres longer. We have a test now that will actually measure your telomere length, and what it does is it gives you a, a, a telomere age. So if you're 40 years of age, you'll find out if you have the telomere length of a 25-year-old or if you have the telomere length of a 65-year-old or if you have a telomere length of a 40-year-old. But you can see what your telomere length is, and if it's shorter than you'd like, then you'll want to be more aggressive and possibly take some of these products that increase telomere length. And if it's long, then you know you're, you're on the right track. Fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? It's a fascinating test. You yourself use an indoor air filter. You filter your water. You have house plants in your home. You suggest a radon mitigation system. Talk a little bit about those. Well, another problem that we're, that, uh, that we're dealing with is essentially the disease of civilization. One of the costs that we have that's been associated with, with uh, civilization, with having electricity, is, you know, we've been burning coal, and coal has generated, uh, released all of this mercury into the atmosphere, which has then gotten deposited into the oceans, which is then uptaken by the fish, which we then get into our bodies. Most everyone has mercury toxicity, and we have lead poisoning from the solder that they put into our, our, our water pipes. When we shower, we get lead into our bodies, and our air is polluted from, uh, from all the vehicles, and the list goes on and on. We have water pollution, air pollution, food pollution, and detoxification is critical. So, you know, houseplants... They're one of the best ways of uh, detoxing uh, the air. Uh, putting a water filter, you can get a, a simple Brita filter on your uh, faucet. is a simple way of removing over 90% of the lead and uh, the other contaminants found in uh, drinking water. Uh, getting an air filter for your house, in addition, uh, can be beneficial. But just getting a Brita air filter, which you can get for 30 or $40, and uh, some house plants, uh, which will beautify your house and are inexpensive, uh, can do a major job. Then if you want to, you know, uh, spend $3,000 and get a far infrared sauna, I mean, there are plenty of other things you can do, but you don't need to spend a fortune to do some very effective detoxification. And I think all of us need to detox ourselves. You also mentioned not cooking with aluminum cookware, which most of us cook with, interestingly enough. Yeah, I think that aluminum cookware is a bad idea. Using aluminum foil is a bad idea. Using plastic to store our food is a bad idea because when you wrap your, your food in some type of plastic wrap, some of that plastic comes off into the food. Uh, if you microwave food in plastic, that is an absolute disaster. Uh, and, you know, when you cook food in aluminum cookware, uh, aluminum has been implicated as uh, one of the causative factors in the development of uh, Alzheimer's dementia. So uh, I think that with this epidemic of uh, Alzheimer's that we're looking at, we're living longer than ever. Uh, I think the use of non-aluminum cookware makes a lot of sense and avoiding, you know, using the, the glass for storage and glass for, uh, for cooking as well and stainless steel uh, makes a lot of sense. You were very detailed about so many things that I've covered on the show. One thing I wanted to ask you was about green tea because you're a big proponent of green tea and green tea extracts, both, correct? That is true. I quit drinking coffee about six or seven years ago, not because uh, there aren't health benefits of coffee. There are. Uh, rather, I just wanted to be able to uh, drink more green tea because I think there are more uh, health benefits with green tea. Uh, coffee has been found to actually reduce the uh, risk of Alzheimer's disease uh, and improve concentration and possibly help prevent Parkinson's. So there are advantages to drinking one or two cups of coffee a day. Uh, but with green tea, uh, the evidence uh, suggests that it reduces risks of cancer and heart disease. Uh, 
the more you drink, the better, so that there are certain benefits with one or two cups a day and more benefits with four to six cups a day. So uh, I just went to drinking uh, green tea uh, generally. Do you prefer drinking the green tea or do you also supplement with green tea extract? I personally don't take green tea extract. Uh, I use it mostly uh, in cancer treatment. It's one of the nutrients we use to help people who are uh, dealing with cancer uh, because each uh, pill, each capsule of green tea extract has the equivalent of five cups of green tea, the, the various uh, ingredients in green tea. So if people take four of those capsules a day, they're getting the benefit of 20 cups of green tea a day. Wow. And I understand that white tea has a lot of antioxidants as well, and that green tea has been known to have different fluoride levels in them, like bottle teas have a lot, bag teas have a lot, but loose leaf green teas don't. Do you use loose leaf green tea yourself? Uh, I do. I also get, you know, the, the t- type that are in the little uh, tea bags. And that's one of the downsides to green tea is I guess tea itself tends to take fluoride, fluoride up from the soil. So it does have uh, some fluoride in it, um, which, you know, it may be uh, have some health risks uh, having too high levels of fluoride. So even green tea, there are... Uh, downsides too as well. It no, doesn't appear that anything is absolutely perfect, uh, but there are a number of health benefits nonetheless. And it really is with any type of tea. Uh, there are health benefits with the brown tea. There are health benefits with white tea. There are health benefits with green tea. I want to close by talking about antioxidants and free radicals, which is a very big deal when it comes to aging. What is your stand right now on how much antioxidants and what kind we're supposed to have? I know you mentioned several of them in the book, and you talk about antioxidants being free radical scavengers, but explain it to the public and give them a frame of reference. Well, uh, it begins with these things called free radicals, and free radicals uh, simply are molecules that are missing an electron in their outer shell. And therefore, they're unstable. They need to steal electrons from somewhere else. So when free radicals uh, are found in the body, they tend to steal electrons from whatever is close by, which is typically our cell membranes, and they will uh, steal electrons from the uh, molecules in the cell membranes, which will damage the cell membranes and, and lead, to, lead to disease processes. So one of the ideas was if we could provide a source of these extra electrons, we would neutralize the free radicals and reduce the damage. And that's the theory behind taking antioxidants. Vitamin C and vitamin E are examples of uh, very commonly used antioxidants in the body. And one, some that you've mentioned earlier, like alpha-lipoic acid, uh, is an example of another uh, antioxidant. Coenzyme Q10 is an antioxidant. But the idea that we can, you know, that, we, that, all, that all free radicals are bad is now changing. And what we've learned in the last few years are that we actually need some free radicals in our body and that extinguishing all the free radicals is not a good idea either. There's this concept, a newly developed concept in medicine known as hormesis, H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S. And what hormesis refers to is essentially if the body is stressed by something, it will respond by becoming stronger. So when we go to the gym and we work out with weights, we break down our muscles, we stress our muscles, and our muscles respond by growing bigger and stronger. And the same thing applies with vaccination. When we inject our bodies with some type of uh, toxin, uh, bacteria or viral toxin, our bodies respond by becoming stronger and forming an antibody that will protect us against this in the future. And the same thing applies with free radicals. Uh, Apparently, we need a certain amount of free radicals to make our immune system stronger. So abolishing all free radicals, uh, uh, free radicals are not entirely bad either. So our our, our concepts are changing and are evolving over the years. Does that mean that you're still, in the meantime, though, during this transition, taking antioxidants? Uh, I have... uh, actually reduced the amount of antioxidants I've, ta- I've been taking based on this new information in hormesis. So I think people should be advised that, you know, I think some antioxidants are fine, but we shouldn't go crazy and take every antioxidant that comes along. 
You know, there's a lot of new evidence that's coming out about vaccinations. Are you pro-vaccination? Are you in question about vaccination? Have you ever been asked about whether you're for vaccination? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a, of a mixed mind about vaccinations. I think, in general, vaccinations are a good thing. Uh, vaccinations have prevented, you know, essentially wiped out polio and reduced the, the, the complications we've seen with measles and mumps and things along those lines. I think we may be overdoing it somewhat with vaccinations. So I think giving a newborn child uh, hepatitis vaccine uh, may be uh, pushing it a little bit too much uh, when I think we need to wait for the immune system to form a little bit better. I think we're vaccinating against uh, too many diseases uh, at the present time uh, because it does provide uh, it does have immune system effects. Uh, we're discovering other problems coming from with the adjuncts. Too many problems with the adjuncts in the vaccines. Yeah, I mean they do use aluminum. They do use thimerosal. Thimerosal is a mercury-containing uh, adjunct. So there are some uh, problems with that. Uh, in my clinic, we've developed what we refer to as a rational vaccination policy for children, where we delay the onset of the vaccines where we split things like the measles, mumps, rubella into different uh, individual vaccines given on different occasions so we don't overwhelm the child's immune system and things like that. I'm of a mixed mind about the chickenpox vaccine. Uh, it's a, you know, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it's a, a benign disease. I think having children with chickenpox reduces the incidence of shingles for adults I think that we're going to see an increased uptick in shingles in adults since we're not being exposed to chickenpox in children. So there are consequences to vaccinations also. So in general, I think they're good, but I think we may be overdoing it to some degree. What's next for you, Dr. Grossman? What's next for you in terms of your passion, interest, and discoveries for radical life extension? Well, the thing that I'm most excited in medicine uh, right now is the use of stem cells. Um, there are now a number of uh, clinics in the country. Uh, my clinic uh, is doing some stem cell work where we're harvesting fat from our patients, uh, taking a few ounces of belly fat, and there is a simple process to essentially isolate the stem cells that are contained within the belly fat. Belly fat is the richest source of stem cells in the body. And then we can take that and use that for both cosmetic applications uh, to rejuvenate the skin, uh, we can use that to fill in defects uh, in the skin. Uh, we can use that to augment areas. And, and an exciting thing, we can also use it to regrow cartilage. So uh, patients who have severe arthritis of their knees and are looking at having to have a major surgical operation such as a knee transplant or a hip transplant can now undergo a simple uh, liposuction, take a few ounces of belly fat, and have those stem cells injected in their knee. And in the majority of, of cases, they're having a dramatic improvement in pain uh, and are able to avoid what's really a, a big surgery. I mean, a knee replacement is, is quite a big surgery, and it does have a certain uh, risk of infection, and uh, a certain number of people die from this surgery. So uh, if we can replace an expensive and painful operation with an inexpensive and painless procedure, uh, I think uh, doctors are going to be looking at this more and more in the years ahead. So that's the thing I'm most excited about. How interesting. What have you been doing yourself to deal with the level of electropollution around us? I know Ray is very, very excited and wants everything to go wireless, but there's all these problems with everything being wireless, and that is we constantly have electropollution at us all the time with the cell phones, the cell towers, and more. What are you doing to help yourself to avoid being hit by high levels of electropollution? Well, unfortunately, I, I don't have any specific therapies um, that I know of for that. Uh, at one time, I was using like a Bluetooth with my cell phone because I felt that the Bluetooth radiation was far less than the cell phone radiation. But uh, in that I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, and some recent studies have shown that cell phone radiation actually can break down the, the neurofibrillary tangles that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. I actually hold the cell phone up to my head now uh, in order to uh, potentially uh, break down neurofibrillary tangles, uh, Alzheimer's plaque. So, uh, but in terms of other things like Wi-Fi nets and things in airplanes, 
I don't know of anything that's been shown to be uh, totally effective for that. So I, I do have general detox things. I have a far infrared sauna in my house. I hear they're great. Yeah, they are. And uh, they, they are at a lower temperature than the standard saunas. They're supposed to penetrate deeper in the skin uh, and release more toxins. So I do have a number of things that I do for just generalized detoxification, but nothing specific for the electromagnetic detox. I love what you're doing. I love the book that you and Ray wrote together, Transcend, Nine Steps to Living Well Forever. I haven't read Fantastic Voyage yet. That's my plan to read that next. And I really want to thank you for being on the show today and giving the listeners a context and very specific things that they can do and deal with and take on right now. So, Dr. Grossman, I want to thank you for being our guest Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Terry Grossman. He is the co-author of this blockbuster book, Transcend, Nine Steps to Living Well Forever. And he can be reached by going to grossmanwellness.com. He is in Denver, Colorado, and you can call him to do speaking and also to see him as a doctor. And otherwise, you can buy the book Transcend at transcendbook.com or at amazon.com. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure.